Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 139 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In today's episode, we have the beginning of a brief series on Nazarites from James Jordan. James Jordan is scholar-in-residence at Theopolis, and here he's going to lay the groundwork for understanding Nazarites by giving an overview of the book of Leviticus and Numbers. He's going to give a basic layout of Numbers that will help you remember the book, as well as deal with sacrifices and offerings in the book of Leviticus that are very helpful in setting up the discussion of Nazarites. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and as always, thank you so much for listening. It is the topic of Nazarites that I'm going to be looking at, and I called it Nazarites and Knights because, in a way, the Knights of the Middle Ages are kind of like the Nazarites of the Old Testament, not in every regard by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that we sometimes think that um, it's possible to have a civilization in which everybody is identical to everybody else. And we, uh, we in our circles often criticize parachurch movements as if there was something new and strange about them. A church has always had parachurch. There have always been monastic orders. There have always been uh, hospital orders. There have to be... In civilization, some people who are set aside for unusual tasks uh, and who get together and pray and worship together in terms of their calling. Now, that's not supposed to compete with Lord's Day, covenant renewal, sacramental worship. What's happened in America is that Lord's Day worship has become totally parachurch. All of the PCA churches out there are trying to be campus crusade meetings. That's, that's what's happened. Parachurch has taken over Sunday morning. But you need to have parachurch. And you need to have knights. And you need to have warriors. And in the Bible, that's recognized. It's recognized that a person can temporarily become a special holy warrior. And in the Middle Ages, in that Christian civilization, that was also the case. And so for those of you who want to stay up late Wednesday night, we'll show the film Percival which is a very clear uh, transcription of uh, Chrétien de Troyes' Percival, the very first thing ever written about the grail. Uh, he invented the grail, and uh, it is a story of how to become a Christian knight who helps the helpless, defends the defenseless. I think we need to get into any passage of the Bible, in this case Numbers chapter 6, by looking at the whole context in the book. So, what is the book of Numbers about? It is about the war of conquest that's aborted. It's about the death and resurrection of Israel. It's about the formation of God's camp. Their march across the wilderness, which is simultaneously a march across the sky because they are numbered as a heavenly people in all of the census figures of the tribes of Israel correspond to heavenly periods of time uh, of the planets. And so they are moving across the sky as a heavenly army to bring uh, God's new kingdom into the land of Canaan, to dispossess the old people who were there and to establish a new heavens and a new earth. Sand and stars, Israel, the sons of Abraham, into that land. But because of their failure and their refusal, 
they die in the wilderness and another generation is raised up. They're gathered again and they begin that conquest. If you look at the first thing we have, we find that as is very often the case, though not always in the Bible, the structure of the book of Numbers follows Genesis chapter 1. The first section of the book, chapters 1 to 10, takes up the theme that the earth is without form and it forms up the camp of Israel with the tabernacle in the center and the four tribes of Levites around that and the twelve tribes of Israel in a square around that and then the mixed multitude around that as a cloud and the formation is given. And then it takes up the theme that the earth is void and they number the people, which turns out to be a numbering of the stars of the sky. And the earth is dark and without light. But remember that the sun, moon, and stars and the lights represent rulers and governors. The sun, moon, and stars were set up to rule the day, to rule the night, to be signs and symbols of rulers and governors. So that we know that when the sun turns dark and when the moon turns to blood and when the stars fall, that's a symbol of the rulers of the nations falling. And so the establishment of all the different leaders in this section gives light to the camp. Now the things of day one are taken care of. Then we find that they are defeated uh, and they are unfaithful and they wander in the wilderness. And the wilderness is that firmament area between Egypt and the promised land. Here is Egypt. And here is a land. It used to be called the promised land. Now it's a land that flows with milk and honey. When you go to Egypt, how do you go to Egypt? You go to Egypt. Down to Egypt. When you leave Egypt, what do you do? You, you come up. Always in the Bible. You go down to Egypt. You come up out of Egypt. We have heaven, we have earth, and we have the firmament in between as you rise up. This is the wilderness. This is where you encounter God. This is the place between heaven and earth. It's the same thing that happens on Sunday morning when we who mediate between the heavens and the earth in Christ are positioned in the firmament. Well, these people wander in the firmament and fall. The next section of the book in chapter 13 deals with bread and wine. It deals with the bread and wine offerings and the various kinds of bread they're given. And then at the center of the book is the death and resurrection of the leaders. At climaxes, uh, we have uh, rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Well, that's already been seen. We have, yeah, we do. We have rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. We have who are leaders. And we have the death of Miriam, after which water is found. Because women always provide water. You meet women at wells, thirsty, Miriam dies, water's found. Then you have the death of Aaron, the death of the leaders, and then a resurrection of leaders and a new numbering of the hosts, all in this section. Then we have uh, matching the bread and wine. On the fifth day, we have all the offerings that are supposed to be brought near uh, this host of people and host of offerings that are gathered corresponding to the host made on the fifth day. The sixth section of the book, chapters 30 to 33, give us faithfulness, victory, and summary of travels in the wilderness of the new humanity. And then the last section foretells entry into the land and organizes the land. So we come to a Sabbath motif. That's a way to remember the book of Numbers. 
What is going on in Numbers then? Leviticus is about drawing near in peace with God. It climaxes with the dedications of the people to God. That's the 27th chapter of Leviticus. If we were to look at it, it's all about people dedicating themselves to God. That's where Leviticus ends. And that's right on the heels, right on the cusp of the book of Numbers. As the people dedicate themselves, and then if they need to be bought back from that dedication, if they need to cancel a vow, if something happens, that's Leviticus 27. This is where Numbers picks up. It organizes the dedicated people. Dedicated people include the whole nation, the priests, or more accurately, palace servants. That's what the word priest means, servant of a palace. The Levites, they're all numbered. They're all given their chores. The Nazarite warriors, dedicated people. The women who are all holy and faithful. So there's an inspection of jealousy to make sure they are. The people are rededicated at the Passover of the second year, which is in chapter 9, and then they move out on the march. The dedicated people. Then in the second section of the book, the people fall from their calling as Adam fell, or perhaps better as the Sethites fell by intermarriage. The mixed multitude is the main idea here. Uh, the fall of Adam is recapitulated in the fall of Nadab and Abihu who blasphemed before God in Leviticus 10. At, uh, Cain's struggle with uh, Abel is the two men who fight in Leviticus 24. And now we have the fall of Israel. First of all, the rabble starts griping about food in chapter 11, which is okay, and God gives them quail. But the Israelites join with them, and the Israelites go out and get the quail, and God starts to kill the Israelites because they were supposed to be satisfied with manna. And then Miriam and Aaron complain about a valid mixed marriage in chapter 12. Moses' wife was just not white enough. God says to Aaron, Miriam, you like white? I'll make you white for a week. But it's all about the mixed multitude here in chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, Caleb, a descendant of Esau, proves to be the most valiant warrior of all. And so God floods this generation for their tenfold rebellions and wipes them out in chapter 14. What we learn from this is no true conquest can happen unless the Gentiles are rightly incorporated along with Israel. That's something that Paul is teaching in Paul's letters. The new Israel has to be made of Jews and Gentiles. And no true conquest is going to happen unless the Gentiles are incorporated into Israel, which is what happens in Joshua chapter 5. Everybody's circumcised. All those people who are out there in the wilderness whether they were originally Africans or American Indians or Chinese, whoever they were in a mixed multitude 40 years later, they were all circumcised and they became a new Israel in Joshua chapter 5. That's what we're being taught here. You've got to include the Gentiles who came out of Egypt with you. Then the promise is held out. Wine will be added to the bread of tribute. will be for Gentiles as well as Israelites. That's in chapter 15. Gentiles must be included, but only as worshipers of Yahweh. Now this addition of wine here, this is very important for the Nazarite study. Wine, grapes. We saw Jesus take the Nazarite vow tonight in the passage it was read. I will not eat of the fruit of the vine until I finish the holy war. And when I come into the kingdom, then I'll drink it. Okay, That's the Nazarite vow. So this whole, all this stuff about grapes and wine and numbers is going to be important for us. Well, continuing on with just the story in the book of Numbers, 
God then says, when you come into the land, you'll be offering wine. You will come into the land, I promise you. You will have wine. And then this section begins, uh, the fourth section begins and ends with the death penalty for Sabbath breaking, which really means refusal to enter into the Sabbath rest. Death comes upon the people after the rebellion of Korah, and the Levites are set up as a new shield of protection around the people who must now give them their tithe. Then death comes on the leaders at the center. The chief Levite and tithe recipient Aaron dies. And this enables the people to leave the wilderness, their sins remitted. And then there is resurrection. And then Israel gets a new start. And then they sin again, just like they did at the golden calf by uh, complaining and the serpents come among them and they have to have a brazen serpent. But then they're forgiven on that occasion. Then as Numbers moves along, you know, Numbers looks like it's a potpourri of chaotic stuff. That's why I'm going through this. There is a logic to, to it. Okay, now they're right on the edge of coming into the promised land. And God says, you're going to come into this land and it's going to be so bountiful that you're going to be bringing all these sheep and all these oxen and all these goats month after month, day after day, week after week. This entire two long chapters of all the animals and oil and flour and wine that they're going to bring. Well, what does that mean? I mean, imagine that you're out there in the wilderness you're thinking, we'll be bankrupted in six months if we have to do all this. But God is telling them, no, you won't because I'm going to give you a land that flows with milk and honey. It's not that land that Abraham had that wasn't cooperating, that kept having one famine after another. No, this is going to be a great place and you're going to be so prosperous that you'll be able to bring in all these animals. And there's a big stress in Numbers 29 about the 70 bulls that are offered at the Feast of Tabernacles because this signifies the 70 nations of the world and once again points to including the Gentiles. Then in the sixth section of the book, the outskirts of the land are entered. It's kind of like the sixth day of creation. Adam being put in the garden, starting out there. And then in the seventh section, the outskirts are divided. Levitical cities, who are now the protectors of the people, are set up. Okay, that's the book as a whole. Now let's narrow our focus down. The first section, okay, the general literary organization of the book of Numbers, and this I shouldn't have included this, but if you're going to study the whole book, Watch for Yahweh said to Moses, which I abbreviate YSM. In the book, Yahweh says to Moses and the people respond and do something. Yahweh says to Moses and the people respond and do something. That word and response, that's the whole book of Numbers over and over again. So, all the little sections, if we were to you know, completely outline the book, we'd have all these sections that start Yahweh said to Moses, YSM. And the first section corresponding to the first day, chapters 1 to 10, has this structure. Chapters 1 and 2 organize the camp in place, tells us where everybody lives around the tabernacle. Matching that at the end is the organization of the camp on the march. We find which tribes march in which order and which Levites are scattered along. There's a paper back there called Cosmos Constructors, which is real complicated and difficult, but if you want to get into all the details of this stuff, you can read it. Because wherever they went, they would set up the tabernacle and build a new cosmos. And so that march is like a march of angels going to a place and building a world and then marching to another place and building another world. Well, that's the, the inner and outer parts of this section. 
The B sections had to do with Levites and the firstborn. The Levites substituted for the firstborn babies that were saved at Passover. The Passover angels spared all the babies up to five years of age. Okay? And though children, uh, male children up to five years of age are valued at five shekels. And so the Levites are counted at five shekels each. They substitute for those five shekel babies and they take the place of the, of the five-year-olds and younger who were saved at Passover. Now I know that in the Ten Commandments they have adult men who were firstborn being killed by the green smoke. But that's, that's not true. Okay. When it says the threat against the firstborn is against five-year-old kids, boys, and younger. That's easy to prove by looking at the numerical values assigned to them from Leviticus 27 and in Numbers chapter 3. Matching that are the Levites, uh, the Passover, the second Passover, which saved the firstborn. That's the second beast section. Inside of that, we have stuff about Levites. Levite guard duty, that's C1. Levite guard duty, that's C1. Middle of the entire thing are the rulers. The first thing is Aaron will bless the people. The second thing in this middle section is all the princes come and they bring all their gifts. We have the song about that. All the gifts given by the rulers. And what these traditional princes and rulers are doing by bringing all of these gifts is they are yielding fealty to King Yahweh so that He is now the king and they are subordinate to Him. That's in the middle of it. And on either side of that is stuff about consecrated people. And in this outline, C2, consecrated people, 5.1 to 6.21, that's our next shrinking of focus. So at the bottom of page 2, this is outlined. Bread and wine are highlighted at the end of this section when these are the plants of the second half of the third day. Remember it says on the third day, it does not say God made all the plants. That's, a, that's Sunday school stuff. It says He made trees that had fruit and grass or grain. Okay? Bread and wine stuff. He didn't make broccoli. Okay. An enemy has done this. Now we, the Bible doesn't tell us when potatoes were made, when pine trees were made, when seaweed was made. The Bible tells us about bread and wine type plants made on the third day. Or really bread and oil plants. Wine from vines seems to be even later, farther into history. Okay, so this is, but still, this is theme. Plants of the third day. The first thing we find is that God tells them to separate those who are under symbolic death. And this is because we're starting up the war camp which is on the march. And when you march out to war, that's holier than being in the wilderness camp. Now this is real hard for us, and rightly so, because all of us, by baptism, are sacramentally placed into the kingdom of God so that we're in union with Christ. And where is Christ? Let's throw that away, okay? Where is Christ? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you're in union with Christ, that's where you are. Now, you can't get any closer to God than that. But in the before time, when there was not yet a man ascended into heaven, there are all these degrees of separation from God, which is a rainbow around God's throne. 
in which formed these degrees of separation. The high priest, he could go into God's throne room, but just once a year. And the priest, they could go into the holy place. An ordinary uh, clean person could come into the courtyard where the altar was. But there are other degrees as well. A city that has walls around it is holier than a village that does not have walls around it. How do I know this? Well, first place, the book of Numbers includes a whole description of walled cities and what's special about them. It's also the case, if I have a house and on the walls of my house there are these green and red spots that start to show up, what your Bible calls house leprosy, it doesn't make any difference if that house is out in the countryside. Only if it's inside of a fenced or walled city. Then it's a problem. Because a fenced or a walled city is holier. And we find that lepers in the Old Testament are always outside the city walls. Because a leper, there's another degree of holiness here. Then there's the land itself. So there are these degrees. This is called graded holiness. That's what us professionals call it. Graded holiness. And if we look at Leviticus, excuse me, Numbers chapter 5, which is where we are now, we're getting in on it. We find, start finding out who's holier than whom. Well, that's what these Nazarites are about. Nazarites take a special holy vow. They get higher up on this chain of holiness for a while. But it's kind of dangerous. The closer you get to God, the danger, more dangerous it is. Because God is a consuming fire. And Jesus hasn't come yet. So you get up here close to God, you don't want to stay here. The high priest comes up here once a year, he, he throws blood in there in front of the throne of God, and then he books it out of there. Okay? It's, you know, read in the book of Numbers all about fire. The Lord was angry with the people, and fire broke out around the outskirts of the camp. Fire came and burned these people. Man, you don't want to make God, who was a consuming fire, angry, or you're toast. Nadab and Abihu were burned up by God. And so, this whole business of how close you get to God, the risky part of it is all over these rules in the Old Testament. We don't have to really worry about it anymore in that symbolic sense. Because if you're in Christ, you're as close as you can get. And if you're not in Christ, you're as far away as you can get. Alright? So we start in chapter 5, the first rule about this. And the Lord says to Moses, Command the sons of Israel, send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a corpse. You will send them away, both male and female. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile the camp while I dwell in the midst. Well, up until this time, if a person had a discharge, and we're not talking about the woman's monthly discharge, but one that is unusual, or a man who has one that's unusual, or if he's come in contact with a dead person, they just had to kind of hang loose and cleanse themselves at the end of the time. But now God says, put them outside the boundaries of the camp. And they'll put the lepers even farther out because we're going to charge this camp up and make it holier than it was. Because when the camp sits still, it's holy. But when the camp goes on the march and turns into a war camp, it gets holier. Okay? Let me give you another example of it. An army camp is more like the tabernacle. Why? Because God's house is a headquarters 
of the general. When you come into church, that's warfare. That's a gathering of the army. On Sunday morning, it's a gathering of the army. And that's exactly what the priests are dressed in armor and they kill animals that represent people. That's holy war. That's their version of holy war. We're going to have to talk about that more. But the priests conduct Nazarite holy war by killing animals that represent people. The Nazarite who goes out into battle is just an extension of that principle into the political sphere. Alright? In Deuteronomy, where we have the laws about the military war camp, that there is a statement that if a man has an issue while he is in the camp, he has to go outside of the army camp. Okay? And if you need to use a bathroom, you have to take your spade and go outside the camp and dig a hole. Okay? Because God walks in the camp. That's what it says. Oh, here it is. Number, Deuteronomy 23. When you go out as an army against your enemies, this is verse 9, keep yourself from defiling things. If there is a man who is unclean because of an omission, he must go outside the camp, not till evening approaches. You will also have a place outside the camp and have a spade among your tools. When you sit down outside, you dig with it and cover it up. Since the Lord your God walks in the midst of the camp, it's holy. And so these things, would normally you wouldn't have to do that. But now you do. The latrines have to be outside the army camp because it's higher up in holiness. Alright? Now because we're getting higher up in holiness, it makes it more risky to be close to God. And if you get... If you wander away from God, you have to bring a sacrifice that is called a sin offering or a purification offering to bring you back up close to God. But if you commit the other kind of sin and you get too close to God and you get holy, you have to bring a trespass offering because you've trespassed. Or literally, a desanctifying offering to take the holiness back off of you and put you back down where it's safe. If you get up here too close to God, you're in danger. So you want to be desanctified, get the symbolic holiness off of you down to where you're clean. If you wander away down into uncleanness, you want to be pulled back up. Get too holy, you need to be desanctified with a trespass offering. That's what Adam did. Adam stole something that belonged to God. He reached out and stole it. Okay? That's a high-handed sin. That's a sin against holiness. And you've got to be desanctified. Eve committed a sin of being led astray. That's the other kind of sin. Wandering astray, led astray. She says, the serpent deceived me. Paul says she's right. Paul twice says the woman was deceived. She was led astray. That's the other kind of sin. You need to be pulled back up. So, you remember from Leviticus, if a man commits a sin of inadvertency, Literally a sin of wandering away. Being led away. Okay? You know, somebody talks you into something. Or parents teach their kids wrong. Still a sin. It's not the same as a high-handed sin. Well now, we're, we're getting closer to God because we've been moved from the wilderness camp, which is in place, to a war camp, which is on the march. We're upgraded in holiness. And so, we may... Uh, have to be desanctified uh, if we are 
if we commit sins. So we are reminded that if a person swears falsely right in front of God, which is a real sin against holiness, he has to be desanctified. At the center of this section, verses 9 to 10, are contributions that Israel gives to the priests, holy gifts. Then we come marching back out to the law of jealousy. Okay, the law of jealousy is where a wife commits a sacrilege against her husband. That's the way it's talked about. And she has bread in her hand, and her law is all about bread. And now we come to the Nazarite, who is a holy holy warrior. That matches that first section where we talked about the wilderness camp becoming the wilderness war camp full of warriors. And now we have special warriors. Okay, guys who take, or women who take a special holy war vow. And as the inspection of jealousy for the woman was all about bread, with the bread in her hand that she holds when the, uh, to call God to come and judge her, the law of the Nazarite is all about wine. The Nazarite is the opposite of the exiled person. Okay, at the beginning of the section, anybody with a discharge, uh, anybody who is corpse contaminated is exiled. The Nazarite is the opposite of that. He's exiled. He gets closer. He's temporarily close to God and afterwards is desanctified. He's also defiled by accidental death near him. Nobody else is. Okay? I become unclean if I go into the same room with a corpse. This is an enclosed space. Okay? If there is a dead body in here, we are all unclean for seven days. We have to be sprinkled on the third day and on the seventh day. Resurrected on the third and seventh day from the influences of death that come on us. Okay, But if I'm outside and I come near a dead body, if I, as long as I don't touch it, I'm not defiled. But a Nazarite, if he comes near to a dead body, he's defiled. He's farther up on the holiness chain, and because of that, the defilements are more powerful in their effect on him. Okay? He's more sensitive. Okay? He's more sensitive to death. The ordinary person is sensitive to death. If I come into a room where there's a corpse, or if I touch a corpse, I'm so sensitive to death that it takes seven days of cleansing for me to get back to normal. Nazarite is even more sensitive to death if there's death even near him outside, it contaminates him. We'll see this. Alright? So, um, this law talks about the head of the Nazarite being separated, which is just like the head of the high priest. The Nazarite, and this is, I'll just give this to you and we'll see it. The Nazarite is a temporary high priest acting like a warrior. A Nazarite is a temporary high palace servant acting as a warrior. And we need to put these two offices together. The high priest or high palace servant moves in toward God. That's his job. To take the sins of the people out here, cover them, bring the blood in here, please God, and come back out. The Nazarite, with the same kind of anointing, moves in the opposite direction. He takes the power of God out, away from God, extending it into the world. The high priest moves in toward God. 
the Nazarite moves out. We have to have both of those together for a picture of service. Okay, now if that's been confusing, that's why we go over these things. <laughs> because as we go over them and over them, you start to learn it more. We don't have any Nazarites around here, so we didn't grow up thinking about this. So now it's our now we have an opportunity to. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.